Hey, y'all. You're listening to How I Got Here with Drina Whitfield, the podcast that dives deep into the unique journeys of some of the dopest entrepreneurs, business leaders, and personalities I know. I'm your host, Drina Whitfield. I created this podcast to have real, honest conversations about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Grab your notebook, sit back, relax, and catch these gems. Okay, today I am chatting with Jewel Bush, Chief of External Affairs at Girl Trek. And for those of you who don't know, Girl Trek is the largest public health nonprofit for African American women and girls in the United States. With over 1 million members, Girl Trek encourages women to use walking as a practical first step to inspire healthy living, families, and communities. Jewel, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to chat with you. Thanks, Drina. I'm glad to be having this conversation with you. We have so much to talk about. We have so much in common and I'm here for it. Yeah. So Jewel and I met, I would say, how long ago, Jewel? Like maybe two or three years ago? It's been longer than really? that. It's like, what, it's like, what is time? You know, <laughs> what is time? <laughs> we met at Essence Festival probably about four years ago, but I think we were, we were definitely in communication before mm-hmm. at face to face. So it's probably more like, I think it's four, four years or possibly a little longer. Oh, dang. Look at me with my time. Oh, well, look, keep in mind, we didn't lost two years basically because of the pandemic. <laughs> that is true. Two years gone. Yeah. That's right. And I really wanted to talk to you because you have a unique journey. You, you started in this work as a journalist, and now you're leading external comms and just partnership affairs for this amazing organization, Girl Trek, that I actually got a chance to see you in action at the stress protest a few years ago in Colorado. And I got my entire life. I, I think I went on my first hike there as an adult woman. It was actually really amazing. I'm really excited to kind of just talk to you about your journey along the way to getting here. I really like to start it from the beginning. And mm-hmm. I always ask people this question. So, Jewel, when you were graduating high school, mm-hmm. what did you write in your high school yearbook when it said, in 10 years, I will be dot, 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 dot? What was your <laughs> dot, 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 dot? This is funny, Drina, because Facebook memories will not allow you to forget anything. <laughs> it's they, sure won't. Won't. they it, you cannot forget with Facebook memories. So what happened, like so when I graduated from high school, I have under my graduation photo in the yearbook psychologist. Oh. Yeah. You were serious. Like I was I'm gonna be a psychologist and like I didn't even fully even know what a psychologist But I said I was going to be it. And so I quickly learned, though, from my first semester in college that that's not what I wanted to be and that I knew I wanted to be in communications. And so I changed my major before the end of my first semester to mass communications. I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up changed that major. I looked at them courses. I was like, (laughs) this is not going to work for me. But I always had an interest in writing and journalism and storytelling. So that's what I had underneath my graduation picture from high school. But years before that, in like my sixth grade journal, I wrote that I wanted to be a writer. Mm. Look at you at a young age already writing it down. And manifest. 
Mm-hmm. And where did you go to college? I went to school in Louisiana. It's a regional school called Nickel State University. It's about 60 miles south of New Orleans. So people don't realize that there's a south of New Orleans, but there is. And I went to school there. Yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't know anything about Louisiana outside of New Orleans because, you know, for for me, for my first time coming to Louisiana was for Essence Fest in New Orleans. And so a lot of people just like that's all they know. Well, yeah. And, you know, that makes sense because even people who are from Louisiana and live in Louisiana is like there's New Orleans and then there's everything else. Mm. So it makes total sense. What's it like? Explain to me, like, what's the what what's the difference? I mean, I know every like every like every major city is different than like the surrounding mm-hmm. cities, but doesn't the culture kind of just bleed out into the surrounding cities, you know, and towns? Yes and no, right? So New Orleans is a port city. It's an old city. It's it's a city where it's really an island of liberalism and it doesn't the rest of Louisiana isn't like that. So it really is like its own little island of, you know, debauchery, of fun, of <laughs> just of, of everything. And so you start leaving, once you start leaving Louisiana, you start to see, oh, excuse me, leaving New Orleans, you start to see that, oh, people are conservative. People, there are rural areas. People have, you know, different religious beliefs. So New Orleans really is an island to itself. It's super Catholic. It's like the blackest Catholic city Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's super Catholic. And I tell folks that um, Black Catholic is very different from just like Catholicism. It's like really its own unique culture. I went to a Black Catholic high school. I have relatives who are uh, nuns and priests. And it's a whole thing. It really is a thing. Black culture to me, Black Catholic culture to me, really is about community and less about religious dogma. And mm. so for that, it's deeply personal for me. Mm. You grew up in New Orleans, though, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you went to the school just outside of New Orleans. What was your first job upon graduation? I worked for a New York Times daily owned newspaper. And it was back in the day where people actually subscribed to the newspaper and you read the stories in print. This was before paywalls and online content was a thing. I remember being in conversations in daily newspapers in the newsroom where people were talking about, well, if we put the stories online well, people buy the newspaper. Well, what are we going to do? And so I remember wow. being in newspapers in the early 2000s. And uh, those were the conversations that were being had. Oh, wow. That's like really at the like the cusp of like when everything was going digital. Oh, I remember I didn't even check my email on the weekends. <laughs> I would like leave work on Friday. OK, see you later and not check emails on the weekends and not felt not not feeling like I missed out on anything. I was in the newsroom when 9/11 hit. Oh, wow. Like I remember that. Yeah. What was that like? Well, we were a afternoon newspaper and so for folks who may not remember, an a, a newspaper with an afternoon deadline meant that 
you were actually working on the newspaper that morning and folks started to get the new newspaper, like around, let's say, you know, noon and one o'clock. So you had the whole morning of events to capture, not just like uh, AM papers. They were putting their paper to bed like in the middle of the night. So when folks woke up at 6 a.m., they had the news. So for 9-11, it was impossible for newspapers and print to do that because those events happened in the early morning. So people had already had their headlines. You know, they the, the, the early morning news had been wrapped up. So what it meant was that our newspaper was able to have headlines from September 11th that were of, the uh, the bombings and so if you look it's kind of it's kind of like a, a thing if you look and see oh what was the New York Times headlines for on nine eleven so a lot of newspapers quickly went and did a special edition but you know my newspaper was able to capture that news. And basically the whole more the whole paper was planned, but that happened and it was like you gotta scrap that. This is truly breaking news. So for me when I see the scrolling headlines, breaking news, breaking news at the top of every hour, and it's the same news from the previous hour, I'm like, this is not breaking news. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was that experience what piqued you, like piqued your interest into really like following through with a career in journalism? Well, actually, no, like actually, no, I already knew that I wanted to tell stories. And so when Mm -hmm. um, 9-11 happened, I was already a features reporter. And so it was my job to tell stories about people and people in the community. And I remember writing and getting a chance to meet so many amazing people and going into people's homes and writing about everything from, you know, someone making homemade wine to someone who created one of the largest collections of like amphibian and reptile recipes. And so it was like, wait a minute. Yes. (laughs) What? Yes. Yes. And so that I wrote that I'm telling you, this is when stories were like put on the wire. Like I've had stories that have caught a lot of legs. Like that was one of them, the culinary herptologist, this guy created this big encyclopedia of, recipes about amphibians and reptiles. And it was historical. Some of these animals had, were uh, extinct at the time. So it was really like this culinary anthropological book. And so people were fascinated about that. And so that story oh, wow. uh, went all over the country. Interesting. And I wrote about Invisalign when it first came out. And that's another story that went all over the country. Invisalign? Wow. When was yeah. that? When did they first like come out? Like 2000, 2000, early 2000s. Yeah. Interesting. The year 2000. Mm-hmm. I know why I love journalism because, you know, it allows you to just share and tell different stories. But why is it, why is journalism important to you? What kind of impact did it have on you? Wow. That's a big question just being able to tell stories, Mm -hmm. being able to tell stories, being able to identify what is newsworthy, what will people care about? And also as a Black woman, as a journalist, telling these stories, it was really stories that would not have been told otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I saw, definitely saw myself as that person to tell those stories, I knew these stories were going to be 
newspaper clippings were going to be saved in scrapbooks. It was going to be posted on the refrigerator. People were really going to value having their story told. And so I just, I remember like just writing, like I tell folks this all the time, my first journalism award or award for writing came when I was in first grade. And I still have, yes, I still have- Tell me about that. I need to know about this. Look, I still have the little gold trophy, gold plate, a flaky plated gold trophy (laughs) in my mom's curio at home. And it was a Black history essay contest. Like, I don't know where the essay is. I would love to read what, you know, seven-year-old Jewel was writing (laughs) about Black history, but I won first place. Wow. I mean, my son is in first year, I'm first grade, and I'm like, I, Jewel, what were you doing at first grade writing essays like that? (laughs) I'm struggling with, um, let's count in groups of 10. (laughs) You know, I always tell people, I was like, I've been woke. I was like, (laughs) I've been woke. Being woke is exhausting. I've been woke since I've been writing black (laughs) essays in first grade. The thing that, I mean, I, I think the point, that you were driving towards though was like, it's important to have people who look like you, who maybe come from similar experiences as you in these newsrooms because they play an integral part in a lot of the stories that get told. Like you said, a lot of the stories that you were able to write about probably wouldn't have been written about if you weren't in that space at that time, at that moment. Oh, absolutely. Nobody was checking for stories about Black debutantes in that community I was writing for. Nobody was, I remember writing a a story about, and and I tell people, you have to read everything. And like a good story isn't just going to fall on your lap. You have to root it out. And I remember going through calendar listings, and this is just meetings and listings and finding a listing. It was a support group for family members of the incarcerated. And this was just a a meeting held at a church. They just wanted the little notice put in the newspaper to reach people. And I was like, wait, there may be something there. And so I ended up reaching out, spending a few months talking to the people in this group and writing a series that won a New York Times Chairman's Award. And Come on, Jewel! Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been in, I've been on the PR side of it for so long that folks don't realize that my background is in journalism, in print mm-hmm. journalism. But Joe, this is what I'm gonna need you to do, and this is just publicist to publicist. I'm gonna need you to start <laughs> sharing some of these things out here on on social media. I know it, like for us, like it's hard to kind of just share your accomplishments because. I don't know about you, but for me, it feels a little bit braggadocious and I don't like, I don't like to be like that type of person, but these are amazing things and accomplishments. And honestly, I didn't even know this about you until I started doing some digging before we even hopped on the call today. And you know, Drina, it's always easier to talk about other people and we do mm-hmm. the same work. So it's like, look, I mean, I'll talk Drina up to the cows come home. Like, and Drina, you don't know Drina? What do you mean? You don't know what PR? So, I mean, <laughs> it's easy for me to do that, but it's just harder because you're right. It feels like you're bragging. It feels like yeah. you're boastful. And being in journalism as long as I have been, like, I remember before there was a Facebook. 
I remember right? before there was an IG. I remember before, you know, you actually had to do communications work that didn't rely on social media and digital communication. So yeah. for me, it feels the whole thing is like self-aggrandizing. Yes. Come on. Let the young ones know because... We could talk about that all day. We're not even going to go down that rabbit hole. This is, about, <laughs> this is about you and your journey. And so, Jewel, I want you to tell me a little bit about, you spent some time covering stories in Haiti and Palestine. Let's talk about that. Yes, yes. So, gosh, I'm like, I need a timeline. Okay, when was this? You know, actually, uh, I think it was in maybe uh, 2001. 2001 was my first trip to Haiti and I was there for um, a little bit over a week. And so I had never been to Haiti. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not one of those countries at that time that you could, you know, the the cruise uh, had a port there. It wasn't, people weren't like, oh yeah, I'm going to take a weekend trip to Haiti. It wasn't that kind of thing. And so I had an opportunity to shadow a, a mission group of folks who were going there to, you know, wanting to support the country, wanting to do good through the organization Food food for the Poor. And so there's politics and things have happened with that organization. And, you know, fast forward to 20 years now, I have my own feelings about mission groups, but I Mm -hmm. went to uh, Haiti on a writing assignment and I ended up writing a three-day series and like I pulled up that series a couple of years ago and I read it and I, it was to me, it was cringeworthy because like, you know, their politics was writing with the new at a new at a newspaper and then, you know, trying to make sure my I'm capturing the story in this, you know, fair, objective way and mm-hmm. trying to remove voice from it when really it should have been a first person narrative series. And so that's my the way I look at it now, but it was still a beautiful experience. I was able to go into the mountains, you know, eat golden onions with priests who were cooking for us. And I'm talking about Haitian priests and see mm-hmm. people and talk to people. And in all of my preparation for that trip, people were telling me, oh, why are you going to Port-au-Prince? Are you going to be safe? You're going to be robbed. You yeah. know, it's not safe. And, you know, I went to Haiti. Well, then you already know the kind of things people tell you in advance to like scare the bejesus out of you. But at the end of the day, these are people. And And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful island. Yes. And you need to be safe wherever you go. Like point blank. You know, if I go out to check my mail or get the garbage or whatever, or walk into through a parking lot in New Orleans, I need to keep my head on the swivel. So it just applies when you go to other places. So I, I'm glad that I didn't allow those naysayers. And these were people who had never even been to Haiti telling me all of these negative things about Haiti. Oh, you're going to be there and there's going to be a coup. You're going to be running for your life. And and that was not my experience at all. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just like what people see and hear on the news and just, I mean, like you you think about it, like they say that about like New York, they say that, I'm sure they say that about New Orleans. Mm -hmm. They say that about Atlanta. Like, you know, it's just, you have to go and experience different things for yourself. Right. And and like you said, keep your head on a swivel everywhere. Oh yeah. Please believe (laughs) on a swivel and so that was the same thing when I went to Palestine. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you going there? You know. What was that like? It was, Drina, 
one of the most beautiful experiences that I've ever had. I've had a chance to meet people and make friends that are friendships right now, right Mm. now. And that was my first time traveling to a Muslim country. And I'm not a Muslim identified person. That's not my face. That's not my way of life. And so again, there were a lot of preconceived notions and a lot of those notions and just, uh, and the information I had was information that people were telling me who had also not been to these places, who had mm-hmm. also not engaged with these people. So that was an amazing experience. And for that, I was able to, I wrote about that for Transition, which is a Harvard journal about the African diaspora. And so I wrote about Black Palestinians. Mm. So that was amazing. Like these Afro-Palestinians, I didn't know about this concept. And so I ended up, you know, we were going to like all of these um, centers and talking to these NGOs about the work that they were doing on the ground in Gaza. Because I was, I spent my time along the Gaza Strip. So I uh, went in through Egypt and crossed into from Egypt into Palestine. It's a whole it's a whole thing and they can deny you at the border. Why are you here? It's not an easy place to go to. It's again not a, a travel de- destination, but I went uh, with a group of writers and journalists and photographers and things like that for the purpose of capturing and telling these stories and connecting with people there. So I was able to write about that for the Harvard Journal transition. And yeah, one of uh, the women who I met there, her name was Samra. Like I met her working at basically what would be like a community center. And this was a Black Palestinian. She was born there. Her family's been there for for generations. And so, I mean, she looks like an African woman. Mm -hmm. And so when people think of Palestinians, they don't think of Black people necessarily. And right. this, was a, this was a Black woman. So I met her at the community center. She was like, oh, I'm going to a wedding. And she spoke English. She was a translator. So this was good good for me because I don't speak any Arabic. So yeah. she spoke English and she invited me that same visit. She's like, oh, I'm going to a wedding after I after work. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, I want to come. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I want to go to the wedding. So I went and I was able to meet this elder. She was about 93, 94 years old. Again, a Black woman. I'm seeing all of these Black people, these Afro-Palestinians. And so I'm taking pictures and like, you know, with them and talking to them and just spending time with them. Many of them had never met a Black, an American, let alone a Black American. And I definitely Mm. hadn't met an Afro-Palestinian. So it was uh, an amazing cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. The woman I connected with, who was my friend to this day, Samra, she was a part of uh, an international fellowship. So she was able to leave Palestine and travel. And that's really relatively unheard of, of Palestinians being able to travel and move about the world. So I was able to host her a couple of years after that in New Orleans because she was in the U.S. for a couple of months and I was like, well, what's your schedule? Where are you going to be? And so she was like at Cleveland or New York or something. I don't know where I'm going to be. And so I was like, okay, well, send me your itinerary. And I was like, girl, you're going to be in New Orleans. (laughs) I was like, I'm coming to see you. 
So we, we hung out. And so right now she's living in Turkey. Oh, wow. Journalism has connected me with so many people. And what I want to share about with Haiti, I met this, this man when I was in Haiti the first time. He was like our bus driver for the week. And so he drove us around and he's Haitian. And I went to Haiti years after um, with this educational group, this group that uh, raised money to support the tuition fees of people, of students who lived in Haiti. There were some Haitian uh, folks who started this group I was involved in. And so I went to this trip and like, I'm going to this family party and I'm looking at these pictures on the wall. And I was like, this man looks familiar. I was like, I think I know him. Come to find out he's there. And he was one of um, the attendees uncles. And like, I had met this man like 10 years before. And you even remembered what he looked like. That's crazy. I mean, he was, I, I I joked with him. I was like, this is my uncle. Like there are pictures of him. I have a picture of him when I first met him in 2001. And then a picture of when I connected with him, like in 2010. That's wild. The world is small. It is. That's like, that's wild. Cause you saw him 10 years later and it was, you just remembered what he looked like. I can't even like, my memory's not that great. we we both remembered each other which was which is so beautiful so I have a picture of us you know side by side and periodically I'll um, share that out because it's just a reminder to me that the world is so small yeah and it's also just like a, a memorable experience so I'm sure when it's things like that you you remember certain people that made that had an impact on your experience oh yeah oh yeah So was there any point in your journalism career where you were like, you felt like, I'm sure there was because you did transition. I guess I want to ask, like, what was the point in your journalism career where you were like, I want to try to, I want to try something else. I want to transition into, to, you know, a different sort of communications. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it was about seven years in as a full-time journalist and I just saw the industry changing. Subscriptions, Mm. people were not subscribing to newspapers. There were lots of layoffs and it was a tumultuous time in the newsroom because the industry was changing rapidly and people didn't know what to do. So jobs like Departments were closing, there was restructuring, and I was writing feature stories. And I just watched the industry it was changing in ways that I didn't feel like I had job security, to be mm. quite frank about it. So I was like, okay, what do, what can I do? How can I pivot? And so I ended up leaving full-time journalism and going into public relations. And so I went into doing communications uh, for nonprofits and organizations. And so Mm -hmm. that worked really well for me because I had been on the other end of having people pitch to me, oh, you should write about this, you should do this. And so I, coming in from the other side, I knew the real life implications and challenges that full-time journalist face. There's a lot of work to do, a lot of content to capture. And so they just need PR people and comms people to work with them in a certain kind of way. And so I knew what that was because I was just on the other side of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was able to do that and it worked out 
really well because I was able to go into mission-based work. So I could work for an organization and I could care about the mission and I could say that I care about the mission and I didn't have to give this appearance Mm -hmm. of being uh, fair and objective. When it's like, nah, I'm 100% subjective. Like I support reproductive rights. I I am pro-choice. I am supportive of Black women's health and wellness. Like I don't, I support labor rights. I think there should be raise the minimum wage effort. Like I believe in cancer research. Like I can say these things straightforward and do this work unapologetically without having to, you know, come from it as an objective observer. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially as publicists, if you, if your personal mission aligns with an organization or a client's mission or mantra or just their stream of work, you're going to be even more passionate about your day to day work. Mm-hmm. And so you were a journalist for seven years and you transitioned into doing PR work. And I'm imagining, like you said, it was, it was a smooth transition. Right. Because you understand both sides. But are, mm-hmm. are there any moments or have there been any moments where you're like, you know what, maybe I should go back into the journalism world? Do you miss it? I miss it all the time. Right. I miss it all the time. And so I've been able to over the years continue to write. Like after I left newspapers full time, I wrote as a freelancer for years, like balancing working as a communications professional, and I still wanted to keep my byline fresh mm-hmm. for that very reason. And so I've written, you know, I've had like daily columns. I've, uh, for the something called the Uptown Messenger, one of my colleagues, when I was uh, in newspapers full-time, he created his own uh, media outlet, web-based media. And so I wrote column, personal columns for, for that. I've written stuff about reproductive justice. So I've able, been able to, over the years, like play stories that I'm super passionate about in media outlets. And so I haven't done that in a while, but that keeps me fresh, right? That keeps my writing skills up there. I love editing. I realized that as someone who has seen the industry shapeshift up close and personal for 20 years, that I have a lot to offer from as an editor. So mm-hmm. I'll edit people's work. I will talk to people about helping to make their stories better. And I have lots of interest in helping those who have amazing stories to tell, but who may not be formally trained writers. Mm-hmm. And so like doing I some love, writing. Yeah, it's ghost writing. And also too, I tell people all the time, I was like, look, I can't give you a good story, but I could help you tell your story. Like, it doesn't matter if, like, let's say your grammar is off, but if you don't have a story to tell or if you're boring, I can't give you that. (laughs) Not boring, Jewel. (laughs) I can't give you that, but I can help you get it to a place where it's a good, people will be able to read it and get it out there. So I have lots of interest in that type of storytelling and editing. So there are like all of these writing projects and I've had fiction published, and so, yeah, I've had, I used to have like this writer's group that we started here in New Orleans. We had it for about 10 years. It was called Melanated Writers Collective. And we, a lot of our writers, people from that collective are full-time writers. Maurice Ruffin, who is a New York Times bestselling author, yes. he has a, a collection of um, 
essays that just came out. He was in our writers group. Jamie Hadley, who's like now a filmmaker, Davida Chanel, who's out now out in Hollywood working in film, Guion, who is a poet, and he's also uh, going into film. So we had a really, really solid writers group. And so I was able to help create that movement in, in our city of New Orleans. And so, yeah, so there are so many points of entry for me in journalism as a journalist, mm-hmm. me, me writing, me writing fiction, me you know, writing with folks to as a collective. And so it's like, yeah, I've had many bites at this communications apple. And I think that's what makes you a good communicator because, you know, at the the core of our work is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you can, you know, someone's grammar can be off. They can have a, a hard time getting to their story. They can even be boring. But if you don't have a story, there's nothing I can help you come up with. Right. So talk to me about how you came to this journey at Girl Track. Wow. Yeah. So some of the organizations I've worked for include the American Cancer Society. I loved working for them. Like I was like, okay, I'm going to retire from ACS. This is a job for me. I was like, I love it. And then I ended up leaving. (laughs) And so I went to work Mm -hmm. for SEIU in labor communications and being someone who grew up in a blue collar household. My dad was a union member. You know, I come from blue collar stock. So supporting workers' rights felt it felt right to me. It's something I believed in at my core. And so I remember I was working with one of my colleagues at the union and she was like, Jewel, your dream. I found, I saw your dream job. She was like, I saw your dream job. And I'm like, what, you don't want to work with me no more? Are you trying to get rid of me? I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, no, 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 it's not it. I think this is a good job for you. So she shared it with me and it was a job at Planned Parenthood. Right. So she shared the listing for me. I was like, wait, this does sound like this could be my dream job. Like, okay, hold up. So then went for it, got it and loved working for reproductive rights, reproductive justice. I mean, I have a a necklace in shape of a uterus. So I believe in this work very deeply. (laughs) Like, it's, It's the whole thing of mine and it's much needed work. And so I ended up like just working in women's health, women's reproductive rights. But I wanted to do something and go even deeper. And so when I learned about Girl Trek, I thought it was beautiful that they were working exclusively to support Black women's health and wellness and not saying people, women of color, when you really mean Black women, right? Mm -hmm. And so I saw moving into the role at Girl Trek as an opportunity to serve myself, my sister, my aunts, my mom, and to work exclusively for for Black women's health and wellness. And that just really spoke to me. And so I uh, moved on from Planned Parenthood and went straight to Girl Trek. And I've been with Girl Trek ever since for six years now. And you're killing it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And the thing that I love about Girl Trek is just the emphasis on like how walking is the first step and like a Black woman, you know, achieving a, a healthy lifestyle for herself, her family, her friends, her community. Because I just remember growing up, 
in my community, like you would always just see the black moms going for a walk. My mom will always go for a walk. Like, and I'm like, this woman, let her walk. But she would <laughs> always just like, like to relieve stress, just to like get her workout in because she's not doing anything strenuous. But I remember seeing my mom, some of my friends' moms just walk around the community. And I just love how that's the like, the the main driving point behind Girl Track because it is something as simple as is taking a walk around your neighborhood is the first step to really like you know achieving a healthy lifestyle. Right. It's if you are able bodied mm-hmm. and can walk, you can you can walk with Girl Track. You don't need special equipment. You don't need a membership. You don't have to invest in all of these things to get you to to be able to join and do the thing. It's like if you can invest 30 minutes a day in yourself, then you are able to participate and join us. And for Girl Trek, what I um, love about this work is not only is it talking about Black women's physical health and wellness, we're talking about mental health and wellness as well. And mm-hmm. it's something that's so important. There are people who you know, of course, are walking and they have uh, physical health goals, but there are also spiritual and mental health goals as well to be able to get out into nature, some fresh air, vitamin D, to slow down, to spend time with yourself. I use my walks as an opportunity, one, two, uh, when I'm at home uh, in my neighborhood, I definitely walk in my neighborhood. I want to see what's going on. I want to be seen. I want to connect to people. I want to be on the ground. One of my um, good friends is running for elected uh, office here. And so I said, look, Kevin, if you drop off some of your flyers on my walk, you know, I'll put them on the houses. So that's, I'm able to walk, help my homie, share his message, and really just take stock of wh- what's happening in my community. Love it. The one thing that I I find very interesting is that when I think we met, Girl Trek was working towards getting a million women signed up, right, to become members. Yes. And and you guys have have met that goal. But what steps did y'all take to get there? And Oprah is a fan, okay? Well, and you know, Michael B. Jordan as well. Let's not forget about the sexiest man alive. (laughs) That is true. But how did how did y'all get to that monumental point of like we've got we we signed up a million black women? That's amazing. Thank you. And the how we got there, like whew, I'm trying to figure out how to even give that answer. It's through black women believing in us. That's how we got mm-hmm. to one million. Mm-hmm. We got to one million by having a message that's about radical self-care. And self-love, and that was a message and is a message that's needed. So we we have organized and traveled the country and have connected with the women in the church, the women in the gym, the women at the park, women. It's been word of mouth. And it's also been not only word of mouth, Adrena, but storytelling. Mm-hmm. Storytelling health testimonials, having a message that deeply resonates with mm-hmm. people. And some of Girl Trek's biggest supporters aren't just, aren't Black women. They're Black men. They're non-Black people. And I tell people all the time, I said, well, if you love Black women, 
if you love and support Black women, then Girl Trek is an organization for you. I love it. Because it's a simple message and I think it, it resonates easily with, with our communities. Because mm-hmm. like I said, like like I said, like you said, like it's just a common thing that we do. Yeah. Walking. Healthy mm-hmm. traditions of walking. And mm-hmm. it's a simple thing. You All you have to do, you don't have to go to a fancy park. You don't have to travel. You can just go for a walk in your neighborhood. Yeah. And it's free. Yes, it is free. It is free to be a member of Girl Trek. You can go to girltrek.org and take the pledge. We did meet our 1 million milestone goal last November. Excited that we got there. Right now, we're about 1.5 million and growing. We have women throughout the diaspora. We have members in South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Rwanda, and wherever Black women are is where we are. Hmm. What's a day in the life of, you know, chief of external affairs at Girl Trek? What does that mean? <laughs> it's a fancy way of saying that I talk to a lot of people and I'm <laughs> always on, like a lot of people and I'm always on the hunt for amazing stories. Today, I was able to speak with one of our members in Texas. We are planning uh, for an event called the Black Family 5K that's coming back post-pandemic. And what it is, yeah, the Thanksgiving weekend, we encourage our family members to have have basically a, a family walk. You know, after Thanksgiving dinner, get together and go for a walk. It's super fun. We have customized race bibs. We have a race kit. We have T-shirts. And it's really an opportunity. Wait, do it right after things? Like right after we done eating? Yes. Get your shirt and get to walk. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Yes. And so some people will have their family walks um, on Thanksgiving Day because they're already together. But often a lot of people will chart out 5K courses at a local park or throughout their neighborhood and really make a, a big event of it and have their walks on the Friday and Saturday. And so it's a really, really beautiful thing. It's an opportunity to have our elders participate, to have the men in our life participate, the children. And so what happens is like, so I was talking, like I said, talking to a woman out in Texas, her family, they participated in the Black Family 5K probably for all four years. This will be the fifth year of it. And so she was sharing with me that her grandmother, who is 101 years old, will be joining them this Thanksgiving. Oh, that makes me happy. I love that. Yes, yes. And so I was like, Sharon, I had no idea your granny uh, was uh, 101 years old. And she was like, yes. And so over the years, uh, I've come through. So so this year, granny is going to be a cheerleader. She's not going to be walking herself. I mean, at 101 years old, you've earned the right to sit down for a minute. Come on. Go on and sit down, granny. You definitely do have the right. Look, so she'll, but she'll be in her shirt. She'll still be participating. And so there are so many stories like that, that if Girl Trek is not just a thing for Black women, it's a Mm -hmm. thing for Black families and for Black people. And we're going to finish the year strong with a family event. 
I love it. I'm going to have to try to see how I can get my family involved for that. It may not happen on Thanksgiving Day. That's why I was like, right after dinner, Jewel, because <laughs> a lot of my family might have already had a few cocktails and that walk well, is not going to happen. <laughs> well, look, if it doesn't happen on Thanksgiving Day, you all have Friday, you have the Saturday yeah. and just, you know, you, what you can do, you can hand out your shirts on Thanksgiving Day and tell folks, look, I'm going to see y'all Saturday morning and we're going to do this. And since like Girl Trek is big on like communal events, right? Mm-hmm. How is everything currently going on in the world affected the work that y'all have done? What pivots had you have y'all had to make? Yeah, yeah, we have have of course had to make pivots due to the coronavirus and the pandemic, and especially in 2020, the early days where there was just so much uncertainty for 2020. From March throughout the end of 2020, we suspended in-person group events. Now, we encouraged women to continue to get out and walking because we know while physical distance is important, we didn't want people to be socially distanced in the sense of disconnected from people and even more isolated because of the pandemic. So we created something called the Black History bootcamp podcast, walk and talk series. So we thought about how can we support people and encourage them to continue to walk, even though it's not in groups. So we are, we have four seasons now of the Black History uh, Bootcamp podcast series. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Music, all of the places you find your podcast. And we use it as an opportunity to continue conversations with people and also as a way, because what Girl Trek does, we connect history with current day. And so we had a curated content during the podcast where our co-founders, the organization's co-founders would go on and lead conversations about history, little known women in Black history like Olive Morris, Georgia Gilmore, and really have some conversations about Black women, Black people, and Black culture. So that was something that we created to give some people something to do. And we say the, the podcast is kind of like if you're eavesdropping on a really juicy conversation between two friends. And mm-hmm. so we created that. We also did some really, really amazing virtual events, you know, when when people were like discovering Zoom. So we had like these amazing virtual events. We brought together women like Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni, as well as Ilyasa Shabazz, who was the daughter of Betty Shabazz and uh, Malcolm X. We brought together. In conversation with Bernice A. King, who is the daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. We also brought together the national presidents of the four Black sororities. And so we were able to curate some groundbreaking, never before, never before conversations with Black women to talk about Black life. I love it. And so you said four seasons, you're gearing up for another one? Yes, 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 yes. Soon come before the end of the year, we're going to have a new season of Black History Bootcamp. And so we've also had some conversations that some special podcasts. We spoke to Diane Nash recently, civil rights pioneer mm. icon Diane Nash. We talked to Tamika Mallory um, uh, in May around the 100th remembrance of the Tulsa Massacre. We spoke to Brent Newsom. So we are able to connect with lots of amazing people through our special editions of the boot camp. 
I love it. You know, you've had a, a pretty amazing career, starting us off as a journalist, going to different countries to take your work there, and now just championing, you know, Black women's health. What would you say has been your personal mantra along your journey? Ooh, wow. I would say, and this is something I didn't realize I was doing at the time. So this is me looking at it in retrospect, is that I've kept myself current in an industry that was told 20 years ago that newspapers and journalism and communications, as I learned it at that time, was going to be a dinosaur. So I have prided myself on staying current, learning the new technology, being connected with younger communicators, and really just encouraging continued learning. I mean, I want to know what's going on. I remember when people were like, oh, what's Snapchat? What's TikTok? I was like, I'm going to know. I'm going to be in the know of what's the latest trend. And what's beautiful about that is I'm able to use my traditional communications and journalism background and have that inform this the new digital media and new communications because I I, I, can, I see how it all comes together. Mm-hmm. So my personal mantra is be in the know. I'm reading constantly. I know I try to keep up with who are the latest bloggers, who are the, the, the best sites that people are getting content on Instagram. I just want to know who are these storytellers and I want to be connected with those people. So the New York Times is amazing and lovely, but I also want to be connected with the local bloggers. And in New Orleans, there are so many amazing local bloggers and local sites that really are talking about stories that are fresh and refreshing and just really, I, I just got to be in the know. So stay current. Right. And honestly, that's something that I say to clients too. A lot of people will have their eyes on like big, the bigger outlets and really discount the smaller local ones. And I think it's always best to just stay in tune what's happening locally, build your buzz there first before you try to like go after the big fish. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, just be in the know. Oh yeah. Our current media landscape is kind of, kind of along the lines of where it was when you decided to make your pivot, right? There's a lot of layoffs. There's a mm-hmm. lot of papers and magazines folding. And so folks who are in the journalism world or that's their current job and they need, they know they need to make a pivot, right? Mm-hmm. What's one piece of advice that you would offer them? For people who need to make a pivot? Oh, yeah. Wow. Who are like kind of in a similar space like you were over mm-hmm. 20 years ago when you made that jump. Wow. That is crazy because that people do need to make a pivot now, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. That's tough. Well, you know, maybe it's not tough, right? Be in the know. Be in the know. Have a true reflection of your skill set. And don't be afraid to innovate. Because right now, it may not be going to do communications for an organization. It may be branching out on your own. It may be 
a multitude of things, but don't be afraid to like use your skills and know your worth, really. Yep, knowing your worth is key, knowing your skill set, what you could bring to the table. Right. And also, too, communications is a specialized skill set. There are some people who may be naturally good at communications. And, you know, we saw a wave of that, like, oh, so-and-so is really good in our organization. Let's put them on Twitter. Let's put them on Mm -hmm. the IG. And then when things fall apart and there's no real strategy and you're like, oh, well, so-and-so was good on Twitter, but so-and-so doesn't have a communications background, right? Mm -hmm. Like knowing the importance and, and this comes in waves, right? People are like, oh, you know, we need a communicator. And then it's like, oh no, we're going to cut that position because so-and-so is good and so-and-so can write a press release or we can, uh, what's, no communications is a valuable skill. Yep. Know your worth. Yep, exactly. Julie, what's next for you? Any upcoming projects that I need to know about outside of a book I think that you need to be working on? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Right? I want you to come up with a book sharing your experiences and your journey. Like it could be in like a nice dope coffee table book or something like that. You know, that needs to happen. And glory over at Well Read Black Girl. Like mm-hmm. I had a sticky on my um vision board, like me and her connected, and we um years ago. She was like, you need to write your book. I'm going to publish your book. Now, this was maybe three years ago. Look at that. So You already got like, somebody I, ready. I need to come with it. I need to sit my butt down and come with it. So sit I need down. to. Yeah. Yeah. Button seat. I need to. <laughs> I really want that to happen for you. I think it would be great. Honestly. Thank you. I mean, I need like five million accountability partners. People, I'm about to be one. Look, by the end of the year, I'm like, Jewel, you better have an outline. For real, right? An outline. You know, I, I I need to do that. It 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 makes sense. It makes sense. I need to do it. Well, Jewel, thank you so much for joining me today. I really loved hearing a little bit more about your journey. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Drina. We. We, you know, it's interesting how you work with folks and, you know, folks are talented, but then, you know, you get to learn more about folks. I've, I've learned some stuff about you, too. So, Aww. <laughs> real quick, I got to ask my New Orleans like connoisseur, my New Orleans native, just about some food questions. Let's go. OK. If I'm coming to New Orleans and I've never been mm. and I want to avoid touristy spots. Right, because they get crowded. Mm-hmm. Best spot for oysters. Ooh, 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 ooh. That's that's tough. Like Neil's is really good, and it's black owned. There are places along the lakefront that are off the beaten path that I like to go to. So yeah, yeah, Neil's. I would say I'm gonna, of course, always go a black owned first. Beignets. I mean, you just have to go to Cafe Dumont. It's just what it is. Like you, you need to go right? there to have. It's just what it is. I go every time I come. <laughs> crawfish. Now, see, that's a whole nother animal. So, if I can get crawfish, I would prefer for it to be at someone's house, like somebody's Ooh, okay. uncle, somebody's pawpaw. That's pawpaw. What I would prefer. Yeah, boiling crawfish at home. Okay, gumbo. Again. Somebody's house. My, yes, my uncle 
has made the best gumbo I've had in my entire life. He made it outside on a broiler, like a open flame. This is like some good stuff. So, I mean, I like dark roux gumbo from Southwest Louisiana. And it's a thing I go back and forth with people. Like I have family, my family's been in Louisiana since the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And Come on, we have deep, See? <laughs> and we have roots in Southwest Louisiana. So I want my dark roux gumbo from Southwest Louisiana. That's what I want. Okay. All right. So look, Joel, next time I'm there, I need all of us. I need a, I need a day with Joel. Yes. To take me to go get some good food. Yes, I'm with it. And look, if if you're open to leaving New Orleans, we can get some I real, am. real, real good food. Nope, I am. New Orleans is, okay. and you know, the last couple of times I've been, like I said, it's been for Essence Fest and it's gotten crazier year over year over year. Oh, yeah. So I'm always open to leaving the craziness to go get some yes. good food. Oh, yeah. It's a date. It's a date. I love it. <laughs> well, Jewel, thank you so much. Let folks know how they can follow you, how they can learn more about Girl Track. I want to make sure, you know, some of my listeners go sign up and, and join the movement. Okay. Well, of course, girltrek.org for all things that are Girl Trek. And of course, at Girl Trek across all of social media. Mm-hmm. You can find me. I'm um, on social media as at Jewel Marie Bush on Instagram and of course on LinkedIn and also jewelmariebush.com. So those are the ways to connect with me and Girl Trek. Yay. Well, thank you, Jewel. You have a good one and I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Trina. Mm-hmm.